Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. It's been a while, but now we are back with season two. We can say quack now. <laughs> we can? I can say quack. I mean, I've always said quack. You just quack it out. And I still will. Quack, 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 quack. That duck is exhausted, and it's only been one minute. Yeah, so we are back from an unplanned hiatus. Mm-hmm. We're here. And when you're here, you're family. Quack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here <laughs> in our recording space, where it's just you, me, and, and our, our little dog child. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> Yeah, we are we are back with an episode that is has nothing to do with the prompt um, <laughs> no? that I gave last time. I changed my mind in the past month and a half. <laughs> Today we are going to be uh, doing a, a a brief condensed history of mm-hmm. uh, deaf culture. Okay, so more from an, a kind of an American view of development. Okay. Uh, we are going to start by looking at kind of the history of deaf education. Okay. And to do that, we gotta go a long time back, <laughs> where, you know, it was non-existent. So as far back as 1000 BC, laws existed to deny the deaf rights that their hearing counterparts had. Mm-hmm. So anything from owning property, uh, to testifying in court, whether they could be married or not. Mm -hmm. And definitely whether, you know, they deserved any type of education. Mm -hmm. Plato believed that intelligence was present at birth and people were born with perfect ideas and language in their minds. Um, So Plato never had kids. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And he was like, okay, one only needs time to demonstrate their intelligence because it's all in there Mm -hmm. uh and he was like well if you can't talk if you have no speech then there's no sign of intelligence so you know deaf people must be born incapable of intelligence Mm -hmm. because they can't talk it's kind of an asshole maybe it's good he didn't have kids you know there you go (laughs) aristotle also believed uh a person couldn't be educated without hearing uh and the greeks viewed the Greek language as perfect. And if you couldn't speak it, you must be a barbarian. Mm-hmm. So if you're deaf, you're a barbarian. But back to like the original etymology of barbarian. Yes. Yeah. So it was all, you know, negative. We're not even going to bother with you. Right. To continue the, you know, mistreatment uh, through the dark and middle ages, deaf people were committed to asylums as they were believed to be possessed by demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very rational diagnosis mm-hmm. there. Uh, it was believed that people you know, who were born deaf could not be saved as they couldn't hear the word of God. And, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to participate in the sacrament because they couldn't speak. So, no, we can't save you. Mm-hmm. And you even being this way is definitely punishment from God for, like, your sins or your family's sins. Mm-hmm. This, this is just all bad. So an entire history going back to, to like, like you said, th- 3,000 years yes. minimum of, of written record, treating deafness as uh, an affliction, as uh, um, not only a disability, but as one that marks someone as, as incapable, as lesser, as, you know, a, a thing to be dealt with. Yep. Okay. Exactly. 
so it wasn't until the 1500s that there was a bit of a shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pedro Ponce de Leon uh, was a Spanish Benedictine monk. Not to be confused with the other Ponce de Leon. <laughs> Different. Different. Okay. So he uh, is often credited as being the first teacher for the deaf, though there were definitely like individual experiences mm-hmm. before this. Uh, but he worked with deaf children of wealthy families. Mm-hmm. And it was all focused on trying to help them to learn to speak audibly um, and to write and use simple gestures. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much this was all focused on like the wealth needed to be inherited. In. Uh-huh. And if it was like the uh-huh. only child, that's yeah. where this like push came from these wealthy families of like, well, this is my kid, only one I got. Mm-hmm. They got to take the family money when I die. But it was a bit of a shift of someone not just working with like an individual person, you know, one off here, one off there, but someone working with multiple kids. He's got a system. He's got a a sign above the door saying, I I can, I can do it. People hired him and stuff, you know. I can fix your kid. (laughs) I don't know if I want to say fix, but. I think he might. Probably. Yeah. Then in uh, 1620, Juan Pablo Benet, a Spanish priest, uh, published the first book showing a manual alphabet. Mm. Um, John Bueller, uh, an English physician around this time, was also exploring the body and human communication using like gestures. The manual alphabet that Juan Pablo made was like a bit more of like a system. Like mm-hmm. here's an alphabet you can use. John Bueller's thing was more like, how do people use gestures to communicate? What what are some of these systems? Let's look at it. His whole deal sounds like how a pickup artist would describe himself. Probably. (laughs) I'm just communicating through gestures. I'm exploring the body. (laughs) Yeah. So these were uh, some of the, like, earliest documented instances where people were starting to think about and write down and you know document their research into communication that wasn't just through speech Mm -hmm. you know none of them were necessarily like super groundbreaking (laughs) let's educate everyone but steps finally in the right direction after thousands of years of you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. but that said just because these are the first documented things it doesn't mean that people who are deaf were not communicating right a kid will find a way to tell you when they're hungry Yes. Well, and, <laughs> like, was... and and then, you know, things grow from from there. And that's true for a hearing child as well. Yes. Well, and so you would have families where they were using their own uh, home sign. Mm-hmm. So a home sign is like a version of a sign language that is developed within the home. Yeah. Um, there are also, you know, communities that had larger populations of, you know, people who were deaf that were creating their own versions of sign that was universal amongst the community. Mm-hmm. These are things that existed. How far back? Possible? No. But we can assume a very, very, very long time. Conceptually, as, as long as humanity, as, as long as people... As have... long as there was someone else that would listen. Exactly. Basically, yeah, who yeah. would observe, sign back, or communicate with you. The most famous example of mm-hmm. um, you know community language developing mm-hmm. without there being any type of 
anyone teaching it officially <laughs> is uh, the story of Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so starting in 1690, 200 immigrants from Kent County, England settled in Martha's Vineyard, which is an island in Massachusetts. Jonathan Lambert was one of those people, and he settled in Chilmark, um, a very isolated fishing village on the island that was a good, like, day-plus ride from, like, anywhere else. (laughs) They didn't have their own port, which a lot of other places on Martha's Vineyard did, Mm -hmm. so they were, like, very isolated. Right. Um, And according to record, uh, he was deaf, and uh, it was, you know, hereditary, so it was passed on. Mm Mm-hmm. His deafness spread throughout his family and the community as other families married within the small community. Right. Um, By the 19th century, one in 155 people born on the island were deaf and one in 25 in Chilmark. Uh, The U.S. overall during this time was one in 5,700. So a pretty high rate compared to your national average. Yes. Yeah. Um, So because of this, Language and deaf culture grew immensely within this community. Mm -hmm. It is believed that Lambert came to the island with regional sign language that developed in his community in Kent. Um, And then when he came there, it evolved into its own language that would become known as Martha's Vineyard Sign Language, Mm -hmm. which is now an extinct language. Um, (laughs) The thing that's really interesting is it was used by both deaf and hearing people on the island. Mm -hmm. It was just another form of language. Right. Everyone knew how to sign, and what was very different compared to other places in the world, deaf residents were pretty much equal to their hearing counterparts. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone was doing their jobs and owning property and marrying, and there were no, like, separations between the two, Mm -hmm. and you grew up learning both you know, English and sign. Right. And that's like the one, well, the the two interrelated differences between this island and everywhere else in the world is uh, a universal literacy in, or in at least one of these languages, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, sign, if not spoken English, and also just the, the critical mass of being more than 2% of the population. Yes. And we're going to talk a bit about it more later, but deaf education was growing throughout the world within the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And in 1817, the American School for the Deaf opened, um, which students flocked to. You know, it was right. a residential school, the first in the U.S. Um, and the school used French sign language. Students would have brought their own community language there or their family languages, and it combined and the influence would eventually become what we know as American Sign Language over mm-hmm. time. The opening of this school was like, great, we're going we're <laughs> to talk about a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But it also led to the decline of Martha's Vineyard right, and their sign language. So as people started to go elsewhere for education, leave home, go learn for a while, go study elsewhere, they either didn't come back or they came back, but they were... You know, they had met their spouse. Well, they were on the mainland. They had... Right, right. The community started to shift um, because there was now more pockets of deaf communities popping up Mm -hmm. with these schools. So that led to a shift of how how hereditary deafness was being passed on within the community, first Mm -hmm. off. Then there was also a shift around this time of how 
ease of transportation. So Martha Vi- Martha's Vineyard was becoming more of a tourist destination. Right, right. Uh, which meant more people flocking to the island, it growing and, you know, how many people even live there normally. Mm-hmm. But then that also shifted the dynamic of how hearing and deaf people were able to have jobs within the island Mm -hmm. because if you're having all these outsiders come because you're a tourist destination and they don't know your language yeah suddenly you're you can't do your job running the the like jet ski rental place if there were jet skis (laughs) in you know the 1800s sure but yes good example yeah they worked on wooden pumps it was very (laughs) difficult but this led to a really drastic very fast change of the Martha's Vineyard sign language and deaf community Mm -hmm. to the point where it became extinct pretty fast. Um, Nearly all that we know about Martha's Vineyard sign language comes from oral histories of people who lived during its time. Um, In the 1970s, a graduate student spent um, three years going back and forth between the island to interview the oldest residents who still had recollection of mm-hmm. the language being used. Most of them could just only remember a few gestures, but not enough to reconstruct it. So yet another way that Alan Dershowitz ruined Martha's Vineyard. So that's a, a great example that is used all the time of like how language develops within a community. Yeah, yeah. And I'm... even though someone's not teaching it, it's there. Yeah. Because humans want to communicate. That's what we do. We create language. And I'm sure there is, because of this interchange with the American School for the Deaf, some linguistic influence on ASL as it is used to this day. Probably? Like, Mm. conceptually? Theoretically? Theoretically, there's probably something, but... But yeah, with the language being totally dead, how would we know? How would we identify? That, and you're looking at, even with say the amount of resident like the high concentration of deaf residents there Mm -hmm. and however many might have come to the schools that's still a very small amount of population compared to the amount of students that the american deaf schools served Mm -hmm. and then also a lot of time frame (laughs) so theoretically yes so we're going to back up a little bit going back to that deaf education focus of how Schools kind of grew. Uh, So in the uh, mid-1700s, we were seeing the growth of acceptance into this. Um, And most of it was focused around religion. Mm -hmm. We need to save people. So they Mm -hmm. need to be able to do the sacraments to not go to hell. So the the transition from a, a burden to a charity case. Yes. Gotta save those souls for Jesus. There became basically a split here Mm -hmm. with the approach that was taken in education there were the schools that used different forms of sign language Mm -hmm. and manual sign and then those who used an oral approach and this is something where the split happens and it remains throughout all the rest of history (laughs) so in uh 1760 uh abbe charles Michel de la Paix of Paris uh, founded the first free school for the deaf uh, that used sign language as a method for communication. Mm-hmm. He viewed that the education of deaf mutes must teach them through the eyes of what other people acquire through the ear. Mm-hmm. 
Which is like, yeah. It seems pretty logical. It seems pretty logical. If you lay it out like that. But spoilers, for some people, this is crazy. (laughs) So this concept of education did spread throughout European countries. Um, Mm -hmm. Over the next hundred years, there would be 33 schools opening that used sign. Mm -hmm. Prior to opening his school, he had learned uh, existing sign language from some of his early deaf pupils. But he didn't just, like, use their sign. Instead, he converted it into a form that he found better, Mm -hmm. with the focus of it being used in education. Um, So it was a manual signed French, which means that it matched French speech and grammar, Mm -hmm. and not like, followed its own, you know, language structure. So, so yeah, let, let's talk about the division between a sign language and a manual code, then. Yes. So, signed languages are languages. Right. They are standalone languages that do not match, necessarily, a spoken language's grammar. They have the, um, their own grammar, their own syntax, mm-hmm. obviously their uh, own vocabulary. Yes, I'm which <laughs> is a big, I think, mis conception about sign language most people think that like american sign language is just english it's not Mm -hmm. um it has a completely different grammar structure in the way that you know your sentences are formed while a manual code like literally following the grammar of english and Mm -hmm. it is meant so you are signing what you're reading word for word you're signing what like me and I'm signing to someone else, I could be speaking English at the same time as signing it and everything mm-hmm. would match up completely. Or like um, the, the familiar finger spelling that I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners are more familiar with than actual ASL signs. Mm-hmm. You could use that as a manual code for English very slowly. Yes. <laughs> uh, Which, or, or any other spoken language that uses the English alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. Which finger spelling is often, usually there's a... a a version of finger spelling that is used in any type of sign language mm-hmm. to help kind of cross that void, I guess, between yeah. languages. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of things that don't have signs for it mm-hmm. or, you know, names. Um, until there is a sign created, you have to spell it for people to know what you mean. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that that's kind of the big difference is one is a language that has developed and is you know, affected more by, like, say, regions and dialects, um, the same way any type of spoken language is. Mm-hmm. While a manual code is more like Morse code or semaphore code, mm-hmm. or it, it is another way of communicating the exact same language. Yes. Um, and in some cases, it also removes, um, like, facial expressions. Sign language uses a lot with face. Mm-hmm. Position of your mouth. Uh, are you scrunching your brows? Face helps communicate the context of what you're signing. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases throughout history, when manual coded language has been used, they have completely stripped the facial usage, mm-hmm. basically. Um, that was seen a lot, especially throughout the past, like, 150 years, <laughs> as there, there, there's going to be a big push for not using sign language. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, nope, don't move your face like that. But that takes away the complete, like, context of what you're assigning. Right, right. See us back to France. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he, he made manual sign French. It was bulky and longer. It took longer to sign anything you wanted to sign because you had to 
sign every single word. Um, and it is noted that, like, outside of the classroom, most of his students did not use it. <laughs> you know, they still used their preferred sign language or their home sign. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have helped, perhaps, cross some barriers between people who knew different sign languages, but mm-hmm. it still was more, you know, it, it wasn't natural. Right. But it did open the doors for education because, you know, all these people could be trained to mm-hmm. sign this certain way to teach different subjects kind of thing. Right. Um, it also did open doors for more rights for deaf people. So such as allowing them to legally defend themselves in court for the first time. So you could get away with anything if, if the only witnesses to your crime were deaf. Yeah, yeah, you could do anything. Pretty much. Okay, cool. I mean, you could like blame them. They be like they did it, and like you couldn't defend yourself because they like didn't recognize your ways of communication. It's 1760. There's no CSI. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So yeah. So now that there was like a standardized manual sign, they were like, okay, Mm -hmm. we'll let someone interpret for you. And listen to what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And another thing um, that made this all very uh, influential in changing deaf education quickly is that he allowed his methods and classrooms to be available um, to the public and other educators. So people could come from elsewhere and learn his methods and then take them back to their communities and open another school, etc. Mm-hmm. Which not everyone else wanted to do. <laughs> uh, specifically, the next two people we're going to talk about. Uh, we're all about open source sign languages. <laughs> uh, so in 1760, uh, Thomas Braidwood, uh, a Scottish writing teacher, began the first British school for the deaf. Uh, and he developed a combined system that used sign, but focused on the study of articulation and lip reading. His uh, sign would actually be the forerunner to British Sign Language, Mm -hmm. um, which the UK only recognized as his own language in 2003. (laughs) 243 (laughs) years, you say? Uh All right, cool, cool. That's kind of the the trend on most sign languages. Only in recent years have they been recognized. In terms of British history, that's like, what, four months? Like, come on. I guess. (laughs) He kind of had the first, like, combined approach. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1778, uh, Samuel Heineke, a German oral teacher of the deaf, opened the first oral school in Germany. He believed a spoken language um, was needed to have a proper education and um, was the basis for reasoning and intellectual thought. So it sounds like he, you know, read a lot of Plato and Aristotle. (laughs) Um. Like, it makes sense that the people interested in in performing this this work, in furthering this study, were all about the power of language. Mm -hmm. But they so missed the mark! Like... (laughs) But they have su- such a narrow, like, uh, uh, conception of language mm-hmm. that it, it furthered historical abuse. I feel like it wouldn't bug me so much if they were all like, you know what we need to do? We just need to teach people how to read and write. I'd be like, 
okay, I get your thought process here. Mm-hmm. Like, do mm-hmm. that, you're good. There's just so much more to it. Mm-hmm. And, okay, I guess I should, like, put this out. So when I was in college, I considered double majoring or at least getting a minor in American Sign Language. Because mm-hmm. the school I went to had it. And I did, like, a year, year and a half of the program, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I had to decide just to do one major because too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> But that still left you with a a lot of perspective and experience and vocabulary you don't get to use much. Yes. A lot of my views that are going to be coming out in this episode have to do with what I learned there Mm -hmm. from a a faculty that was made up completely of people who are deaf. Right. Yes. Yes, Um, that's true. It's it's that fine line of like I don't necessarily want I'm I'm not I don't have the personal experience to Mm -hmm. talk of these things and like every Deaf education, especially in the more modern day, becomes a really, really, really tricky, like, people have their opinion subject. Mm -hmm. But I was exposed to a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) that had a lot of opinions. So that's where a lot of this comes from. I don't know. I feel like that just needs to be said. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So uh, our buddy Samuel here. uh, Mr. Heineke of Auto Parts fame. In uh, 1780, he published a book that attacked LePay's use of sign. Yeah. He was like, nope, that's awful. Screw that. You quitter communicating with these people how they choose to. <sighs> Their preferred methods of communication. Samuel had his students focus on lip reading and producing speech. Um, most of his methods were kept secret. Very much unlike our French buddy, uh, who was like, come learn. He was like, no, don't. Um, And in his last will and testament, it was revealed that one of his techniques used taste to teach where sounds were placed in the mouth. So like sugar, water, oil, vinegar, each one was assigned to a specific vowel because Uh the way it made your mouth move would activate that part of your mouth, which is actually, like, a really interesting concept. That's why, like, in in another, like, I don't know, context, like, if you were to use that system to teach, to, to, like, be a dialect coach for actors, that would just be mind-blowing. I mean, it probably is something that's used there. (laughs) When it comes to an oral approach Mm -hmm. for deaf education, it's one of those things that should be available as an option for those who want it. Mm Mm-hmm. This is kind of like a really cool idea for someone who's like, hey, I want to learn that. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, that's a really interesting concept for trying to fit, like, cause how do you tell someone, like, <laughs> you know, your tongue needs to be there in your mouth. Right. Like, that only makes so much sense. <laughs> um, Until you get a lot of practice. But yeah, those yeah. first few. Well, and as like a, a theater student, so much of our like vocal training, you know, it would be someone saying, okay you need to adjust your mouth so pretend like you're making the sound this sound yeah well if you don't have communication right. already you yeah. can't tell someone to do that so it is a really interesting concept to like bypass those steps mm-hmm. it's like here taste this that that's the place but again it's already it's an issue of you're already refusing to communicate with the person in any other way yeah yeah um really interesting concept As mentioned, in 1817, um, the American School for the Deaf was founded in Connecticut. Um, That was not the original name. It had what would now be seen as a very, you know, 
bad name, like pretty much every school for the deaf that opened <laughs> during this time frame. It opened in the time frame where deaf and dumb, mute and dumb, ah, often went uh-huh, together. Yeah. So most schools for the deaf within the 1800s included the term dumb. Mm-hmm. So usually the names we know them by now are not the names they, they were open to under. <laughs> um, even though they were like, okay, we're educating people, we're viewing these, there's a difference, a switch happening in how we view people, it was still the accepted term right. to associate right. it with lowered intelligence. So this technically wasn't like the first school that opened. There was one that opened in 1815, but it was like really short-lived. It mm-hmm. did not last long. So this is considered the first because it, you know, lasted. The first to thrive. Yes. Uh, so the American School for the Deaf was founded with the help of Mason Cogswell, uh, a wealthy local surgeon, and Thomas Hopkin Gallaudet. Uh, he was a recent graduate who just lived next door. Uh, <laughs> Cogswell had a That's young... That's the importance of, of, you know, networking. Yeah. Being involved in your community. Oh my, the history of the 1800s is just networking. Like, hey, random person, you're not doing anything. Do you want to, like, go do this thing? And then Which was suddenly... usually insurance fraud, as <laughs> we have demonstrated. Usually insurance fraud. So Cogswell had a young daughter who uh, went deaf after getting meningitis. Basically, they wanted to start a school, but there were no competent teachers, mm-hmm. you know, that could do it. Uh, Gallaudet went to Europe in 1815, where, as we know, deaf education was growing. Right, right. Uh, he originally stopped by... Uh, all these teachers were dropping diss tracks about each other <laughs> all the time. Uh, so he originally stopped by Braidwoods first. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, I want to learn about your, this, like you know, technique of using sign and oral. Teach me your hybrid theory. Yes. I'm a big Linkin Park fan. Uh, But Braidwood was like, no, not going to meet with you. (laughs) So then Gallaudet was kind of looking elsewhere. While traveling, he met, he met Laurent Clerc, who invited him to come to the school in Paris. Uh, Clerc was either born deaf or became deaf within one year of age. And he had been a student at the school uh, in Paris and then later became a teacher, which Mm -hmm. was, he was a teacher during this time when he met Gallaudet. Right. So he went and after several months learning, you know, everything he could learn at the school, Gallaudet invited Clerk back to the U.S. uh, to help found the first U.S. school for the deaf. Uh, which he did. Um, and this, like, Gallaudet went to Europe to find an education method to bring back. And because Braidwood was like, hey, I don't got time for you, it meant he completely threw an oralist approach out the window. So really, <laughs> the, the story of, of the American School for the Deaf uh-huh. and ASL and its inheritance from a French sign language is just a victory for the, the open source movement. Yes. <laughs> Information wants to be free. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so they... Braidwood's, like, IP law I mean, is, he... like, trademark considerations. Well, and, like, and he wasn't even, like, as strict as... Um... Frohickey. Yeah, him. Yeah. Um, but he was still like, no, I don't got time for you, dude. <laughs> it's fascinating. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, this dude turned me down. Okay, let's try this instead. So yeah, they went, they opened the school, 
So Gallaudet was the principal until 1830. Clerk was um, a teacher there until 1869. Like, they founded the school and got it going. That's a 50-year teaching position yes. in one school. Yes. Um, and he did. He was actually influential in helping open other schools within the U.S. too. Mm-hmm. But he was primarily there. After it opened, it led to other schools opening as well. Um, in the next uh, 10 years, five other schools within the U.S. would open. Uh, a franchise business. They were all kind of independent, uh, okay. but at the same time connected. Cause like, right, right. Okay, we're going to send someone to train over here. Now they're going to come back over here and open it. Mm-hmm. Uh, still continuing that open source yeah. learning. Yeah. So then in um, uh, 1856, the first school in the U.S. for black deaf children was founded by Platt Skinner in Niagara Falls, New York. Um, and that would then lead to other schools for black deaf children yes. to be opening to because... Because all children deserve an education. Don't miss that asterisk in there, though. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing to remember. So in 1857, uh, Edward Minor Gallaudet, Thomas Hopkins' son, uh, helped open a school for the deaf in Washington, D.C. Um, and then in 1864, he sought college status for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and President Lincoln actually signed a bill which allowed them to award college degrees. Though, like, technically they didn't need that bill, but they're like, we want this bill. <laughs> and that would be what would become Gallaudet University, the first higher education school for the deaf in the world. Abraham Lincoln's greatest uh, uh, legacy, the thing he will be remembered for in perpetuity. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Going in our little, like, asterisk of knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, a good thing to note is that the school was only open to white men when it first opened. It would, wouldn't would be until 1887 that women would be allowed white women would be allowed in and then uh black deaf students wouldn't be admitted until 1950 because of segregation mm-hmm. so education is spreading Hooray. Like, things are looking up yes there's like, a college now there's college there's schools we you know there's a, a new shift in the look and approach to education and access the germans are still making vinegar fowls but well fine whatever things are looking up so then in 1878 uh the international congress on the education of the deaf met in paris uh to discuss the use of sign language and deaf education no one that was deaf was allowed to uh speak during this congress did did they have a stated reason or was it just left oh okay we'll get there. okay i don't want so then two years later in 1880 uh they met again for what they called the first international though really it's the second because they already met <laughs> even they were embarrassed about not letting a, a deaf people speak. uh so this time it was in milan and the congress was planned and organized by a committee created by uh created by the perrier society which was a group that was against sign language Then they should get out of this business. (laughs) So over half the people invited Mm -hmm. were known oralists, uh, which oralists are people who view oral education, oral speech above sign. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of the 164 delegates, only one was deaf, and 12 people were allowed to speak to the Congress, and of those 
12, 9 were oralists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not exactly a a fair uh, representation. And, and, and like, this reminds me of things that still go on to this day, not oh, just yeah. in the deaf community, but, like, um, the, the Autism Speaks charity. Oh, yeah. Whose board is entirely non-autistic. Uh-huh. Etc. Yeah. This won't be the last time we talk about it in this episode, either. Okay. This Congress started what would be known as the Dark Ages of Deaf <laughs> Education. Uh, it was declared that oral education was superior, and mm-hmm. they passed a resolution banning the use of sign language in schools, which led to dismissing deaf teachers out of deaf schools as well. Declared and decided by people who already believed that going in. Like, it yep. sounds like there wasn't a lot of fruitful debate. Oh, no. Okay. No. And remember, these were like, as I said, invited people. These <laughs> were who they invited. It wasn't right, even open right. to everyone. When this was decided, the large, large majority of teachers within deaf schools were deaf. Mm -hmm. I don't have the actual number, but it's like, wait, like 90% or something. Like, it it was very large. Mm -hmm. By 1927, only 15% of teachers were deaf. What this led to by the 20th century is that 80% of American schools for the deaf were oral exclusive. Mm Mm-hmm. So it completely shifted the approach of yeah. who was teaching and what they were teaching. So the, this network of schools born out of and responsible for mm-hmm. the creation of ASL are no longer teaching ASL. Yeah. Cool. cool. Or any type of sign. Or any type of sign besides still. But yeah. yes. You know, well, while there were some and mm-hmm. are still some to this day that like are able to succeed in oral education, there's people who prefer it, there's people who utilize it. For the majority, it is it makes the education that they get far more limited. It mm-hmm. also strips them of an identity, a community, a culture, right? And just being able to, you know, communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that to to do even that that shift of like you're taking away the base form of communication mm-hmm. or a form of communication they might have already had, and then being like, hey, nope, can't use it anymore mm-hmm. within the school. Spoilers. They're still going to use it elsewhere. Yeah. But it's going to be a big change. I mean, sure. Fire a whole lot of deaf people from from a job that was really suited to deaf people. Mm -hmm. And then closing that off from, like, by limiting the the allowable expression as well as limiting employment opportunities, you're, you're consigning this population to a reliant position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the U.S., um, I remember this, this ban was across, you know, many places. Right. We're, we're I mean, focusing on the U.S. right now. This was the latest science, as mm-hmm. determined in the 1870s. Yes. <laughs> um, may, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode sometime that focuses on elsewhere and stuff. But for right now, in the U.S., um, this ban led to the founding of the National Association of the Deaf, which was founded to promote the rights of deaf people. And when you say deaf people... Uh-huh. It seemed like they did work to promote the rights of all, but it wouldn't be until 1964 that white women would be allowed to be members uh, to be able to vote, and not until 1965 that black members were even allowed to join. So, you know, just That's some things to keep in mind. Faster than uh, Gallaudet University. <laughs> In, in, like, amount of years that went by? Yes. Yeah. 
because of that, there were other um, associations that did form. There uh, was one that was formed. It's like a National Association for Black Deaf. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the rest of the name was. It was like most associations very long. (laughs) (laughs) But there were other organizations that formed as well, too. Yeah. Try to take care of that lack of uh, representation. One thing the uh, NAD did, though, was they worked to preserve sign language. Mm-hmm. Um, so as sign was getting banned from classrooms, um, they began to use what was new technology, film, mm-hmm. uh, to capture individual signing to try to preserve the language. Um, so a lot of what they filmed has allowed for studies of how ASL has evolved. Mm-hmm. Specifically, like, generational differences between second and, like, to fourth generation ASL users. That's true. Like, uh, ASL can be so linguistically interesting because the evolution can be so rapid. Yeah. Because a lot of the factors that make other languages move so slowly, like uh, uh, foundational written texts, dictionaries, they don't exist for a collection of of gestures and manual signs. At least... Not then, not, so much. Right, not or in the same such way. an you know, extent, yeah. And, and now this video project is sort of in reinventing that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, one of the things that came out of it was they noted that um, signs became more compact mm-hmm. over time. So as, like, it, you know, moved on to the next generation, your what a certain sign would be was no longer taking up as much space. Mm. You know, it was, it was compacting down in the gesture. Right. Um, so you can speak while sitting on a bus and not punching someone in the jaw? Yeah. Accidentally. I mean, but, <laughs> but yeah, so it was like changes, though, to most likely developing, you know, it makes sense because, like, as you're introducing a language and it's you're developing its creation, basically, of, mm-hmm. you know, it came from this French sign, mm-hmm. other communities coming in, and then it morphed into what it is now. As you're trying to teach new people how you know, these signs and it's changing and you're bringing stuff from here and here, like signs would be bigger or Mm -hmm. more elaborate. And as you learn it and it gets passed down, you start to realize like, Hey, it doesn't need to be (laughs) necessarily that big or that long or that um, involved (laughs) because the human eye can like, yeah, get catch the meaning Mm -hmm. in a smaller way. Uh, so in 1960, um, things started to change a bit again in deaf education. Mm-hmm. Um, William William Stokoe uh, wrote the first linguistics book and defense of ASL as a language. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1964, uh, U.S. Congress issued a report on oral deaf education and concluded that it had been a, a dismal failure. <laughs> Uh, and the following decade um, in the U.S., they, we would see a shift from what an oral approach to what would be called total communication, mm-hmm. which was a combo of manual sign and speech instruction. So Thomas Braidwood is cheering from his grave. <laughs> uh, and this would become the main approach used within school systems. And this is when the, the British finally defeated the Germans. Yeah. In American deaf education. Yeah. Uh, and like we've talked about, it was a manual sign. So it wasn't ASL. It was manual coded English. So it mm-hmm. did not follow ASL grammar. I guess you could view this as an improvement because we're not just 
trying to take a kid who doesn't know how to, you know, have a language yet to communicate and just make them talk. Right. We're we're using something that we're recognizing will help, something visual, but it's still not not quite there. Opening up not the whole there. toolbox, but still in in a in a limited way. Yes. So yeah, this would become the the norm. I'll say many of my um teachers that I had when I was in my program were educated during this time. Yeah, like, that was when they were in yeah. school. And I definitely had like a wide variety of experiences, but even with that being like the focused approach, like I still had a teacher that during that time was only taught through an oral education. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't until she was in college that she learned an EASL. Mm-hmm. Um so even though that became the focus, there were still schools that like kept doing what they were doing. So in uh, 1975, Public Law 94-142. An inspiring name. Passed in the U.S. And this required children to be provided free and appropriate education, which allowed for more mainstreaming of students. Mm -hmm. Which led to the amount of deaf teachers employed dropping to its lowest point of 11% in the country. What 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 is the causal link? What why? So mainstreaming mm-hmm. focuses on putting students in mainstream schools. Right. Deaf education up to this time had been focused in residential schools. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so deaf or or you know deaf schools not necessarily most of them are residential, but not everyone had to live there. Right. May, you know a more mainstream environment means starting to create programming within regular public schools. So you're moving the deaf students into regular public schools, yes. which lowers enrollment, which lowers uh, uh, need for teachers, and the deaf teachers aren't getting hired by the public schools. Mm-hmm. They're attached to these now shrinking and closing deaf schools. Yes. Okay. So in 1980, at the 15th International Congress on the Education of the Deaf, which was in uh, Hamburg, West Germany, uh, a large group of attendees uh, challenged the resolution of 1880. Mm-hmm. Um, the Congress didn't overturn it, but they put forward recommendations uh, for informational pur- purposes. They declared that all deaf children have a right to flexible communication in the mode or combination of modes which best suits their needs. So a hundred years later, they, they shared some pamphlets. Yep. Okay. In 1988, uh, Gallaudet University Linguistics Department uh, published Unlocking the Curricula, uh, and it proposed a return to ASL as the first method of instruction for deaf children and refutes the manual coded English approach. That year, a congressional report recommended that ASL be used as the primary language of instruction with English as a second language. And it recommended that ASL be included in the Bilingual Education Act. But that portion of it didn't get approved due to questions Hmm. of it being like an actual foreign language. Uh Great debate is often done over that. Does it help if we point out that it's descended from French Sign Language? Does that help? Great question. (laughs) Um, So during this year, 1988... There was a lot of um, media attention that was put on the deaf community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is because of a protest called Deaf President Now. 
uh-huh. uh, which was at Gallaudet University. This got national coverage. And what it was, was the board of trustees was conducting a search for the next president of the university. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's just a coincidence. Like, they, they weren't talking about, you know, George Bush and Dukakis. No, they no. were just talking about U- the school. University president. Because okay. up until this point, mm-hmm. the school had never had a deaf president. Oh, okay. Okay. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Never had a deaf president. And on February 28th, they had three candidates. Um, a hearing person, Elizabeth Zinzer, uh, who was vice chancellor of academic affairs at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Okay. Irving King Jordan, uh, current dean of the College of Arts and Science at Gallaudet. Uh, and he had been, you know, deaf since age 21. Mm-hmm. So very much part of the deaf community. And then uh, Harvey Corson, uh, superintendent of a Louisiana school for the deaf, who was born deaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so leading up to this, there had been campaigns encouraging a deaf president. Uh, the NAD organized a rally at the school, which grew even more support within the school and community. There was a lot of push. Mm-hmm. On March 6th, the board selected Zinzer, but they didn't oh. announce it. Oh. It was later that day the students found out. And students, backed by faculty, staff, and alumni, marched to the hotel where the board was meeting and demanded they come out and talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after a very long wait, the board chair, uh, Jane Spillman, came out, answered some questions, said that they're holding by their decision. And is also quoted as saying, deaf people cannot function in a hearing world, which, you know, didn't go over well. The board chair Mm -hmm. of a college for the deaf Uh said said this. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Then what do you think your job is? (laughs) Yeah. What's Um, the point of you then? And I, I guess that's like their, her, her reasoning for why they chose the hearing person is like, well, we can't have a deaf president. Like... No, they need to be able to talk to hearing people. Mm-hmm. They, um, they need to be able to schmooze with the board of ed- with you know the the education department mm-hmm. and so, all the university presidents across the country and internationally. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next morning, uh, students barricaded the campus with bike locks. Um, they moved buses and cars in front of gates and let out the tires uh, so they couldn't be moved, and mm-hmm. they only had one open entrance. And protesters would only allow in people that they chose. Mm-hmm. Um, and they completely, you know, shut down campus. Right, yeah. And they had four demands. They wanted Zinzer's resignation and the selection of a deaf person as president. Um, both of the two deaf candidates were highly qualified. And they were like, either of them would be good. <laughs> we're cool with either of them. And how, how hard is it to resign a job that you were just offered that day? Like, come on. They also wanted Spillman's immediate resignation. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted the board to be reorganized. So it had a deaf representation with a 51% majority. Um, at that time... The board was made up of 17 hearing people and four deaf people. Mm -hmm. So not exactly. So at least 11 deaf people. Yep. We we want at least a little bit. Um, And they also demanded no uh, reprimand on students or staff who protested. Yes. Which is very important. So the next morning. Release the political prisoners. 
<laughs> so the next morning, a group met with the board to negotiate, but the board wouldn't meet any of their demands. Um, so crowds continued to grow on campus, and they formed a 16-person council to continue to organize. Right. Uh, it was made up of four students, three faculty, three staff, three alumni, and three outside members of the deaf community. Mm-hmm. Again, during all this time, national coverage was starting to, right. you know, news crews were paying attention. It was being broadcast. Newspaper articles were being written. People were watching. So on the 9th, a press conference was held by the board, and they still stood by Zinzer. They're like, you know, she's our person. Um, and apparently um, fellow candidate King Jordan also said he supported her, but then, like, later retracted that statement to protesters. And this is why you can't trust the royals. <laughs> By that afternoon, Zinzer resigned and said, nope, not going to do this. <laughs> um, yeah, this is not, this is not worth the job. Um, but the board still didn't appoint someone else. Mm-hmm. So um, on the 11th, 2,500 protesters marched to Capitol Hill to Celebrate the resignation and also push for their demands. Yeah, one down, three to go. Yeah. On the 13th, Spillman resigned and was replaced by deaf board member Phil Braven, um, who announced that King Jordan was the next and first deaf president of the university um, and that no actions would be taken on protesters. Three out of four. All right. Uh, I believe there was a shift in the board that came with that, too. (laughs) Not just leadership of the board, but also full composition of the board. Yes. Okay. Lots of uh, media attention during a time when, you know, Congress is saying, yes, ASL, there's reports coming out, yes, ASL, like there's a shift happening around this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I guess something to note is that there would be like another student-led protest actually in 2006 mm-hmm. that was also about the next president um, because, because they were appointing someone who the staff and student body was not a fan of. Okay. And so that would lead to a big thing. Mm -hmm. Big, big thing. But, uh, so in 1990, the 1972 Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was re-adopted and amended to recommend that disabled students should attend schools with the least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. And residential deaf schools fall under the label of most restrictive. Okay. And this led to some residential schools closing within the U.S. Mm-hmm. and options of deaf schools dwindling. A, a continuation of mainstreaming. Yes. That is exactly what it's, it's all about. This really did focus on mainstreaming. That is considered the least restrictive for students across mm-hmm. the board. I mean, it... it- Seems to come from the same place as, uh, you know, integration of schools. Separate is inherently unequal. Mm -hmm. Have have everybody together and we we can all benefit from the the great kaleidoscope of of America's youth as they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even racial integration of schools had its problems because while the students are all mixed together, there is no protection for the, the, the teachers of the black schools who uh, very quickly sort of disappeared. Yes. Uh, which then led to uh, uh, black students in integrated schools losing a lot of their, their support 
fans, their supporters, their cheerleaders, their their positive gatekeepers. Yes. Well, well-meaning liberal action without yes. concurrent uh, um, protections for uh, uh, more specific needs of the community. Yes, can lead to uh, perhaps unintended, but certainly negative outcomes. Yes. Um, so it wouldn't be until uh, 2010 that the 21st International Congress for the Deaf, very long name, they need an acronym. <laughs> the, um, the actual 21st or the 22nd? Because we're still not counting the- 22nd. Okay. They finally issued a formal apology um, from the board for the dangerous ramifications of the ban on sign as it was an act of discrimination and a violation of human and constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, only 130 years later. We gotta be doing <laughs> more of these international conferences, okay? Even with all that, deaf education today is still very split on if there is it is sign-focused, oral-focused programs that use both. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does depend on where that education is coming from, right. in what setting. And, you know, educational rights, accessibility, inclusion are, are very much battles that are being fought in many, many ways for many different people, including those that are deaf. Um, you know, things have come a long way, but there's a lot of things that need to change, big or small, mm-hmm. both with education and just like everyday life. Um, <laughs> when I was in my program, one of our big projects in our deaf culture class, we had um, first off to look at find something within basically the world that, you know, catered to hearing people. Mm-hmm. My project focused on um, uh, emergency sirens. Mm-hmm. So like in the city, you hear a siren and you're like, okay, there's like a siren coming somewhere. Yeah. But you don't know where it is because there's all these streets. Are they turning? Are they not? Are they behind the bridge? Like, you don't know where it is. Right, yeah. Um, and our idea was to come up with a way that, like, ambulances trigger walk signals and don't walk signals when hey, they're in the vicinity. Yeah. So that way, you know, someone who's deaf and can't hear them three blocks away will have their walk sign, you know, switched to mm-hmm. know, oh, I shouldn't go because that ambulance might be coming here. Right, right. And it's like little things like that. Like one of my classes in my ASL class and my school had recently started introducing active shooter alarm systems and they were doing a test. And this is the building that had like the ASL department and it went off. None of us knew what was going on. It took a good couple minutes to find out that it was a drill and not real. Well, that's the sign of a good drill. And it was only um, audio. Yeah. So my teacher, who was deaf, had no idea what was going on and had to look at our terrified faces Mm -hmm. to learn something was going on. And then us, as like brand new ASL students, (laughs) had to communicate with her what was happening. And I was like, in a building that has dozens and dozens of faculty who are deaf, no one thought about the fact that maybe we need to do a visual communication system as well. Mm-hmm. to be more accessible for who's there. Right, right. Before we, we end this episode, I want to talk a little bit of just about sign languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so across the world, there's somewhere between like 125 to 300 different languages being used. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, more if you consider like home signs and, and 
stuff right, like that. Right, but you, you can never possibly but, count them. Yes. But even within these numbers, it's very hard to give an exact count because there's a lot of debate over what is considered a language in itself. Right. And what is considered a dialect of another language, etc. This is just as active a thing in spoken uh, uh, languages yes. as well. So one thing, for example, like Bolivian Sign Language. Mm -hmm. It was introduced as ASL in the 1970s, um, and studies through the 90s and early 2000s showed that at least 30% of it was no longer ASL. Right. There is debate over whether it has now become its own language or if it's still considered a dialect of ASL. Mm -hmm. The way a lot of recognized sign languages work is that they fall under different language families. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Definitely a large amount of them fall under French sign language. And there are historical reasons for that, <laughs> as discussed. And then within that, there's the tree that falls under American sign language that branches out. Mm -hmm. um, but Italian, uh, Russian, Dutch sign languages, these are all within the same family under French sign language. There are some languages that did develop completely like in isolation, still in use, but that's incredibly, I guess, rare for a language that's still being used to have developed that way mm -hmm. because of like the global spread right, of everything. Right. So, like, in Mozambique, they speak Portuguese. Yes. They do not use Portuguese sign language. Mm -hmm. Mozambique sign language is closer to Finnish sign language, which <laughs> is um, believed to be left over from a presence of Finnish missionaries in the mid-1900s. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you know, it morphed and it changed and it became its own thing. I just think it's very fascinating. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't really have a point other than it's cool and <laughs> it's interesting. Cool. And then, like we've talked about a little bit already, um, sign language is affected just like spoken languages by outside factors. So social factors like age, gender, race, social economics, and then we have, you know, geography. Mm -hmm. It changes. So there's different dialects, regional differences. We already talked about there being generational differences where sign yeah, gets more yeah. compact. But there's also a difference, like, geographically, um, like here in the U.S., with American sign. Uh, in places like New York City, it's known for being much faster. <laughs> Just like speech is often associated with a, being a faster life pace. Well, hey, you know? they are walking here. Yeah. yeah. And then in more, like, the more rural south, it's slower. <laughs> um, signs are also known for being kind of larger there mm -hmm. because it's a different pace of life <laughs> and it's affected the same way well you've got to be able to see the sign from around the cow yeah yeah well and then there's um in philadelphia so apparently philly is known for having a very distinct regional sign language that's kept a lot even though it's it's asl it's kept a lot more of its French roots mm -hmm. compared to other areas. Philadelphia, the New Orleans of the <laughs> North. Apparently, a lot of this comes from the fact they had a deaf they had a deaf school. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, it was Clerk actually went there too to help start it off. But they okay. like it started very much in using French sign as mm -hmm. well, and then like everywhere else was morphing into ASL. But because there was a school there, and the community like stayed more within right, the area right. there weren't as many like outside influences changing it 
And then uh, there's also um, the black community, the black mm-hmm. deaf community. There is a distinct um, black ASL dialect. Because it's, of the school segregation. That is one part of it, yeah. <laughs> so um, segregation is definitely a big part of it since the schools were operating separately. And then even um, with the 1880 ban on sign in schools, black deaf schools were often lower funded. Mm-hmm. But that meant that they couldn't necessarily change as quickly their teachers, their approach, their change. Right, so right. Sign tended to stay in those schools mm-hmm. um, more and like developed differently. Um, there's been actually a lot of recent I guess, like research looking at the differences there and trying to kind of like map the changes a bit more. Mm-hmm. But just like with variations of sign, sign users, just like with speech, can like switch, you know, mm-hmm. what how they are communicating within a community. <laughs> so um I sound like this when I'm at work. I sound like this when I'm with my friends. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like I I have to, you know, present a certain way in this community and I have to present a certain way over here and now I'm over here so I can be you know communicate differently mm-hmm. and oh my friend from New York is in town <laughs> mm-hmm. it's it's I just think it's really interesting and I think you know most people don't realize mm-hmm. that there's such a variance there's definitely a big miscommunic you know, misconception that like there's only a few sign languages in use and it's everyone can you know do it yeah. Like speak the same thing. No, it's there's right. very different yeah, yeah, big differences. Yeah. But there is within the recent probably like past twenty years, there's been a bigger push in recognizing sign languages as languages, first mm-hmm. off. And then also within like mainstream schools allowing, for example, American Sign Language to count as foreign language credits right. in schools. Yeah. Which is great. The more people that know, well, yeah, the better. <laughs> I would encourage anybody uh, to to go uh, look into deaf theater, deaf uh, uh, cultural performance, spoken word shows. Yes, it's incredible. One one thing you took me to was a a Romeo and Juliet, right? Yes, uh, staged. Well, not I mean it was staged in Chicago, but but as a, a Martha's Vineyard story. Yes, it, it was Romeo and Juliet set in Martha's Vineyard, so it was half sign, half spoken English. Yes, they switched back and forth, yeah. and it w- was one of the families was uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard locals. One of the families was you know a, a vacation home people, mm-hmm. and so there there was the added linguistic and a whole lot of deaf actors involved. Yes, uh, uh, as well. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Very very cool. I guess if you're looking for something that's more like you're like, where do I start? What can I look at? Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of really great recordings from when they did Spring Awakening. Yes, um, yes. that's kind of I feel like one of the easiest access things to find um, is. A few years ago, there was a production of Spring Awakening. It was done by um, Deaf West Theater. Mm-hmm. And they did an adaptation back in like 2016, 2017. And because it's Spring Awakening, you get to learn a lot of the naughty signs. Yes. <laughs> I think it was my our last class of the session, maybe, like of the semester. 
we finally convinced our teacher to teach us the naughty words. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, come on, come on. Uh, I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about and haven't found a way to cram it in a conversation yet, so mm-hmm. I will now, uh, is that I think the the long success of oralism and exclusive oralism, you, you know more than me, like just from this, I'm like, oralism, sure, fine. Exclusive oralism, fuck you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> but I, I think the success, the, the dominance of that position for, for so long really does speak to uh, Jane Spillman's really unfortunate quote about, you know, deaf people cannot function in a hearing world. Mm -hmm. While I don't think that's true, I think that deaf people who and successfully learn from an oralist approach and then communicate to non-deaf people have such a great advantage in being immediately taken seriously and taken at their word at face value. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone uh, who uh, is equally as eloquent in sign language, but having to rely on an interpreter, having to to have that infrastructure, because the people they're arguing for aren't taking the time to learn any form of sign language, are at a real disadvantage. Yes. Uh, And uh, it it is incumbent on uh, all of us who are born into and navigating a hearing world to, to be aware of those implicit biases. Yeah. Deafness can be something you're born into, mm-hmm. into a family where deafness is part of your culture. It could be something where you're born, you know, you're born into a family where there is no deaf culture. Right. You are the first one or something where you become at a later part of your life. Mm-hmm. And there with is any amount of previous language before that point. Yes. When you're dealing with the, the family mm-hmm. and the cultural aspect of it is where there becomes a lot of the decision making mm-hmm. so um and it's the whole thing of you know every every family has a choice their decision etc but when you're dealing with a hearing family who has no deaf culture right. relation and their child is deaf you want your child to be like you yeah you don't necessarily want to change your life to your child mm-hmm. um not always the case you know this is a yeah Looking but, at, but it, there becomes but that struggle of the, the immediate gut reaction of I I recognize that I have privilege as a hearing person. Mm-hmm. I want my kid to have that. Yes, I th- I think you know that's kind of where like a lot of this comes from, and where there's a lot of like struggle in what the focus is. Mm-hmm. But there's really interesting <laughs> stuff too about looking at the cultural aspect, also of like children who are born to deaf parents, how they feel more a part of, like, deaf culture mm-hmm. than hearing culture. Uh, th- this is hearing children born to deaf parents. Hearing, mean. yes. Did I say it the other way? No, you just didn't describe the children. Oh, yeah. Hearing children born to deaf parents feel a part more of, in some cases, of deaf culture than hearing culture. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, all really interesting, like, cultural dynamics there that... Very interesting research, very interesting things to consider about, like, how those dynamics can affect things mm-hmm. and how sometimes they're taken into consideration in decision making for education and laws <laughs> and how a lot of times they're not and what yeah, that means yeah. and how things get advocated for. Well, that's a lot. Clearly, we've been saving up. Yep. <laughs> this has been raring to go. So we're going to take a break and be back with some letters. Yeah. 
Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Uh, we have a lot of letters, actually. Oh, you know, it's been a while. They uh, they added up. Uh, so let's get right to it. First, one fine cat writes in to be noticed by Senpai and uh, shares some, some really heartwarming things on the occasion of our 100th episode. So thank you. Thank you very much. Kristen writes in uh, and answers the prompt I gave many a moon ago uh, for favorite food mascot. Closely, intimately related to the topic at hand. Just two peas in a pod. If you can't guess, I changed my topic. (laughs) If you can't guess or you didn't listen to the first minute of the episode. When I said I changed (laughs) my topic. Uh, But their favorite food mascot uh, is the strange humanoid dog from the Calabee Chips commercials. Because it's strange, and (laughs) they like the shrimp-flavored chips a lot. That's all it takes. I have never had a shrimp-flavored chip. This is why I'm really interested in all the people writing in, our, our international audience. Yeah. Who had different brands with different mascots. Yeah. It, it can't all be Tony the Tiger. Sometimes you need a weird human dog. There's a lot of really weird mascots out there where you're just like, why? Why did you think that was a good idea? Thank you, Kristen. Andromeda writes in for, I believe, the first time. Thank you very much. I think so, yeah. And their favorite food mascot is the Quaker Oats guy, very handsome. That's me. I, I say that the Quaker Oats guy is a hunk. But uh, this is proof that we are molding the impressionable minds of tomorrow because Andromeda is in middle school. Oh my god. I'm sorry for all the times, I swear. Your mom's probably mad. (laughs) (laughs) But Andromeda is familiar with uh, uh, the the history of the Quakers and William Penn from, you know, a a school project about the the founding of the, the... uh, a Pennsylvania colony. Uh, while Quaker Oats takes the the imagery of Quakerism, it is not actually tied with the Society of Friends in any meaningful way. They just thought it would be good branding. Yeah. So they have this this fictionalized version of William Penn himself as their box man, which goes to show you Pennsylvania was founded by a hunk. Yeah. Um, if you could get in a relationship with the Quaker Oats guy, you would. He's kind of two-dimensional. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I wouldn't because they, like, totally got rid of one of my favorite cereals. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, the only cereal I like. Yeah. <laughs> Can't find it. Uh, we also got a show suggestion, so thank you very much, and thanks for writing, Andromeda. Good luck with whatever school looks like in the fall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to hope for <laughs> for you, other than I hope it's okay. Yeah. Because I'm not sure any scenario's good. Some of these letters are from the before times. The before times. Or not in, in the, the early now times the, when we didn't really, the, when we, it might as well have been before. Oh my gosh. The times. Remember when we used to go to work? Not really. <laughs> I think this has always been my life. In I cannot imagine getting on the bus, <laughs> going to work. In the, you know, several dozen story building, going out to lunch, mm-hmm. sitting in a cafeteria filled with hundreds of other people, and t- riding the bus home. <laughs> like, we used to be daredevils. <laughs> I used to touch a lot of things that other people touched. We used to hug people. I, I was a theater person, I hugged everyone. 
So anyways, uh, Bird writes in. So some very nice thoughts about our Disney trip episode. Oh, thank you, Bird. That's a weird thing to think about. Remember when we went to Disney? <laughs> but thank you, Bird. I, I, I'm glad that it brought you some joy. Th- thank you for your uh, kind offer of keeping an eye out for that shirt that I really want. I, um, <laughs> you know, no pressure. Stay safe. Don't go anywhere. But I appreciate it. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, Regarding a uh, food mascot, uh, they share the guy from Uha Mika, Mika Kuto for the sole reason that Bird was eating the candy. And oh, there you go. The little, little mascot's right there. That's all it takes. Yeah. Thank you, Bird. Final Gamer writes in after uh, uh, doing a bit of a binge to catch up, and that means a lot of responses. Their favorite old movie is A Matter of Life and Death from 1946, or as it was retitled for the American market, Stairway to Heaven. It, it stars David Niven as a, double, as a World War II pilot who uh, crashes uh, uh, his plane in a fog, but miraculously survives even when he was fated to die. So, so uh, there is a metaphysical battle over the legal rights to his soul and whether he is living on borrowed time or entitled to, to continue life over this clerical error. Their favorite food mascot is the Ready Breck Dragon. So a lot of people are, are chilling with their oat cereals, I guess. Yeah. This was a, a dragon. Uh, uh, again, we're not familiar. They don't sell Ready Breck in, in mid-Michigan. Uh, so, but apparently it is, it's, it's a dragon. It's a big old dragony dragon that uh, uh, defends his right to eat oat cereals by uh, uh, fire-breathing on claymation hooligans. Mm-hmm. For the episode 100 prompt, uh, they want to share a bit of video game trivia with the world. There was once a small action game in development named Intruder, inspired by The Great Escape, where uh, a soldier had to you know, sneak around some armies and escape a compound, but the hardware it was on couldn't load a lot of bullets or a lot of enemies at one time. So the developer got too frustrated, couldn't realize his vision and passed the project on to uh, the the new guy in town who decided that, well, if it can't load that many enemies to shoot, why don't you turn it into sneakums and evasion on a screen by screen basis? And so uh, that became Metal Gear with all of those changes. The, the, First stealth action game in history. There you go. So thanks, Final Gamer. Kevin writes in. Hi, Kevin. uh, Really hoped that their email made it in time for the next episode. And you You did it. You You did it, Kevin. You did it. Good job. Anybody who wrote in during June (laughs) made it in time (laughs) for this episode. I'm sorry. A uh, favorite old movie prompt is uh, Duck Soup or really any Marx Brothers movie. Yeah, but Duck Soup is the best one. We can all agree on this. <laughs> uh, favorite food mascot is Tony the Tiger for the hilarious way that the brand got bullied off Twitter. I'm not familiar with this. What happened? Some people are very attracted to Tony the Tiger. Oh. You know, na- nature followed its course. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Kevin also shared some very cute pictures of puppies. Yes. I like them. Thanks, very, Kevin. Very good, fellas. Thanks, Kevin. Peter writes in to talk about maybe not a favorite uh, uh, food mascot, but one that, that really sticks with them. 
uh, Senora Chiquita of the Chiquita Banana Sticker. Yep. Chiquita Banana, formerly known as United Fruit Company, is the reason we have the term Banana Republic. Ba- basically, uh, they, they used their the, the influence of capital to ruin the societies of uh, uh, many uh, uh, Central American, South American, and island nations. With no real recompense, just... I mean, sometimes they say they're kind of sorry, but we're not that company anymore. Look, we changed the name, which is something that Peter is always reminded of when he sees the pretty lady with the fruit on her head whenever it's time to buy bananas. But thanks to Peter and thanks to everybody for writing in, whether it's your some percentage of a hundred like uh, like Peter, like Final Gamer, or your very first time like Andromeda, we appreciate it. We appreciate it all the same. And if you would like to be like one of these fine people, you can send us an email at historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your show suggestions again, like Andromeda, your, your questions, your concerns, your corrections. I'm sure there will be a few just on pronunciation yet again. There's a reason I took sign language as my language of choice. <laughs> Originally, I did much better at it than any other foreign language I ever tried to take. Just just a bit of a, a, a fun story about us as a couple. We both had to do uh, um, language uh, credits in college. Uh-huh. And we talked about doing uh, Italian together, but separately in our separate universities. Uh-huh. I did Italian. I didn't. I did not at all. I I got left high and dry. I did sign language. The language where I wasn't required to try to speak. Your tongue got to take a rest. Yes. And you know what? It was marvelous. (laughs) It was so nice to do well at a language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So much better than English. All right. We were talking about (laughs) letters and how they can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, you can also do some things, like leave us a rating and review on wherever you listen to our podcast. Or you can tell a friend. Mm-hmm. Or you can follow us on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter. At History Honeys. And those are the places that told you to expect an episode today. Uh, but it is great to be back. Uh, it, it was relaxing. Thank you for allowing us to take a a real break. I mean, we got a fair number of letters we didn't read that are just like, hey, y'all okay? And like, we're okay. We're just... Yeah. Which actually, yeah, we didn't... Thank you for those of you who reached Mm -hmm. out and just said, like, hope you're doing good. No pressure. It's just... We appreciated them. We saw them. We had no plans to take a long break, but we apparently needed it. Yeah. It's just a matter of like, this is something we do for fun. Mm-hmm. This is something we do to educate ourselves and to try to educate the world, to try to, more than teaching people, I try to give people an excitement uh, and awareness that there's so much more that, than you know, right? Yeah. That, that there are stories behind at every door, that there are, are questions to be answered around every corner. And there there is so much in the world today that if if that was a more common belief if people really embrace that the rather than just saying it mm-hmm. we would be better off yeah and so there's a, a pressure for us to like bear the weight of a global system built on oppression you know exclusion and genocide when really sometimes we want to do silly things about food mascots 
and and it, it took a break for us to to have some deep breaths and try to rationalize where we fit in the world and and what we want to do with this. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you will notice any changes, but I feel I just feel better about not feeling the grind for call it a month of summer vacation. Yeah. I I feel like sometimes you just got to take a break. And <laughs> yes. it's okay. And you don't got mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have to push out content because it's expected. Mhm. Or because we have sponsors cuz we don't we don't We don't we don't have sponsors, we don't have patrons, we have a hobby. Yep. That that is something we share with everybody who wants to come share it with us and and we love you all very much for that. Yeah. Mhm. That was the longest we've gone without making an episode. <laughs> In, in ever since we made the first since one, since we made an episode. <laughs> for for people who listen to both of our shows, mm-hmm. they'll know I've said before. I think a lot of our best sex Archie episodes are the ones after the show takes a break. After because they're not putting out new episodes, we've had a few weeks to just like uh, and come back at it. Yes, uh, without it feeling routine. Let the listener be the judge of whether that also holds true for history, honey. Are you saying it was a good episode? I'm saying I had a lot of fun today. Yeah. But with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with with your honey. honey. Okay, how come I did it first try that time? (laughs) But when we are doing it regularly, I whack it up every time. time. You whack it up so bad. It takes like five days. We have to like, you like count it out. Love it.